Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. Coming up on today's show, we bring you the highlights from an event we attended, organized by NFI, where we heard from co-founders and CEOs from some of the most up-and-coming fintech firms, including Bud, Solaris, and ClearBank, and our very own non-executive director, Chris Skinner. Enjoy the show. Bud itself um, started by myself and my co-founder on his couch. Um, now, what what we built essentially, and the reason why we started Bud is because you know for us there was all this new innovation. So something currently like nineteen thousand fintechs, um, you know, and, and they've all been brought about because you know consumer expectations simply just don't meet what is out there. So. I'm going to take a step back, first of all, to 1983. So some of you may remember it better than I do. Um, this is a letter uh, from my mother's bank manager to her. Um, and then what struck her about this letter was the personalization in the letter. Now, not by name or by address, but by context. So what we're finding with marketplace banking and personalization is that context is really everything. So in the letter, it says there... Um, in a recent conversation with your mother in Catick, which is a, a town in North England with about 150 people, um, I recall that you and your husband were leaving the UK for some time. So letters regarding when they left the UK um, and they were closing down the bank account. Now, it was because of the personalization, the context, and obviously the insight that this bank manager had, um, that he was able to, at times, kind of predict what her financial needs were. She banked with one bank and she had all the financial services in one place. So... That was the reason why they decided to open the bank with this bank manager when they moved back to the UK. So then you fast forward to today. Now, the way we bank today has fundamentally changed, whether through apps, websites. It's gone from digital, sorry, it's not gone from digital at all. It's gone from personal and, and in-person uh, and relationships to digital. And, you know, digital loses a little bit. So you have now this consumer paradox where in, a, in the UK, 82% of people have um, products outside of their financial service or outside of their bank. Um, 50% have more than one bank account with a different provider. Then you have this paradox, right? So as consumers, we still want a tailored experience. We want assistance. We know that consumers seek assist, financial assistance from all sorts of different things. In the UK, comparison sites, blogs, friends, family. What do they know about your financial life? Unless you're sort of showing them your spreadsheets, which I'm, I'm sure most people don't do that. So at the same time, we still want this level of assistance across. So who can actually provide this in this industry? So from a technology side, we see people like Spotify. Now, Spotify is the largest um, music streaming app in the world. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Now, Spotify is a platform not because it plays music. It plays music like uh, iTunes or um, your record player. It's a platform because what it did was it cured the pain of music discovery. So it takes basically the, the full view of your entire musical library. It then identifies, okay, this is your musical taste. And then from there, it, it creates context. It creates context to say, okay, based on these two factors, I'm going to create a new factor. The new factor is, you don't listen to this music, but we think you'll like this music. And that's why it's the largest streaming app in the world. So this is really what we focused on at Bud, is actually getting that context back into banking in the digital world. So we identify, we take sort of aggregation of consumer behavior, so across all your different financial products, through APIs or through aggregation tools. We then take consumer behavior, and I'll talk a little bit more about how we capture that uh, going forward. But the key is really to provide context to create great outcomes, whether it's by recommending a product or recommending an next best action. So 
we look at who else has done this in the financial space. So as Chris sort of touched on, you've got WeChat, um, which was launched by Tencent in 2011. Now, consumer growth obviously was something in, in Europe we would say ridiculous. So in 2013, they had 225 million customers. These are monthly active users. But what happened is the consumer engagement started to drop a little bit. And what they did was actually make a masterful play of the API economy and start integrating all sorts of third-party services. So what you can do on WeChat, you can now make payments, play games, take out a loan, investment, really anything that you want to do in the financial space, you can do on WeChat. So that really grew and exploded their, their um, consumers. So what we start to see is actually the competition going forward is not about your service, your product all the time. It's about competing for customers' time and attention. So really, it's about creating an experience, and this is the, the threat and the opportunity that open banking PSD2 brings, is you don't have to necessarily change your bank. In the UK, you're less likely, you're more likely, sorry, to get divorced than you are to change your bank. It might cost you more, but um, <laughs> you will change how you bank. And we've seen that people do change how they bank, you know, going to the digital world. Now, marketplaces, platforms, we believe that's the next change. So it's not about competing against your competitor's banking app. It's about competing about where the attention is. So obviously, this done in, in Asia and in, now India. So actually, I've had a meeting with Alipay last week, and they told me that number was about half of what they've got. So that was embarrassing, but also just shows you the scale. So, you know, the people that you're thinking about, the, where, where customers already have the time and attention, the, the digital players, is what really could disrupt banking uh, in Europe. So what we're focused on at Bud is um, help financial service players of today stay relevant in that world. So our layer is all about aggregation. We have, some, we have 50 uh, different fintech partners that we integrate their services directly. Now, in building that marketplace, what we realized, again, was it's not about building a marketplace where you can see all these products. No one really cares about that. That's like a shop window. It's really about learning enough about the customer to provide context and to have all the relevant answers to any question they might have. That's what creates the stickiness, the um, engagement, and the, the, the habits that you want to form. So once we launched our relevance engine in our platform, we actually had a uh, consumer engagement spike by 82%, which we thought was pretty interesting. The other key insight from that is that it's about looking at your consumer journeys. So the great thing about the API economy is that where your consumer journeys are ugly or you can't fill in all the gaps, you can bring in third-party services to do that. Again, that time and attention piece. So I'll give you a little bit of an example of some of what we do in Bud. Now, if you, anyone downloads Bud now, you won't be able to see this yet, but this is a lot what we've been testing with the Cortez group. And this is what we at Bud actually are deploying to banks in the UK in the next year. So we start out with aggregation. So the first piece is to get the full insight the full information from various bank accounts. Obviously, this open banking helps this, but you can do this for various sources of aggregation. We then to get to something called two sigma of certainty, which is about 95.7% certainty that, yeah, they, maybe they need an FX product because they're going on holiday. We know how much they typically spend when they go abroad by day. We can see from their flight records how long that is going to be. And then we want to get a little bit more certain, so we'll pose a question. Um, the question will be relevant to the context, and then we can get to three sigma, which is 99.7% certainty, which is good enough for finance, not good enough for theoretical physics. Um, so we can get there, and then we can recommend a product. So at that point, then, we've, we've taken the context of your finances and said, by the way, this is what we recommend you do. So again, 
all about context. So from there, then it's about ease of use. So then it's about being able to use the product directly integrated into the service. So what we're really focused on at Bud is integrating all those services so that you don't have to integrate it into your backend system. You can basically just take our platform and then have this functionality into your applications. So something we've started to learn actually, again, is it's not about the marketplace itself. It's about making that invisible and creating context. So the two ways we've started to do that are through something pretty obvious. I'm sure most people have looked at some sort of goal or tracker. But it's not about the functionality of the goal or tracker. It's about the intelligence you glean from it and what you do. So what we look to do with it is say, okay, someone's saving up for something. What is the product? They could tell us by just saying what it is. We understand the context of what they might be. We might understand they're a student. There might be discounts available. We can engage with retailers. And this is where actually the app itself becomes this helpful assistant in your life. Another thing we've built and will be launched next month uh, is called Virtual Accounts. So Virtual Accounts you can do a whole bunch of different things with. So think of any use case. Uh, Two people are, are getting married. They have two different financial lives, but they have expenses going across. So they don't have to be now with the same bank. They can just have a a virtual joint account, and they can start adding their expenses there, managing their financial life. So from our side, we understand they might be going abroad. They might be making large purchases. There's a need for, again, maybe FX, maybe insurance, contents, all sorts of other things. So we're also looking at doing this with wealth managers. It's an interesting question. We started to talk about this technology to a wealth management bank in the UK, and they said, could you create a wine list? We're like, okay. We never really thought about a wine list, personally. I mean, I like wine, but I don't have a wine list. But actually creating this set of offline assets that you can then insure against and actually start to track, this is actually kind of creating this more holistic experience where it's not just about what categories you spend your money on. It's about actually how your money affects your context, your life. So... What are we doing at, at Bud? We, we basically engage with a whole bunch of different banks to deploy this platform. Uh, we have a first partner uh, it's in testing with. It's going pretty well, although obviously the challenge is working with large institutions, you know, the legacy systems. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and we're looking at doing this for most of the people in the UK and, and now kind of Europe, what the opportunities are. The key piece is we have to create the ecosystems which integrate um, make the partnerships. Obviously, the nice thing is, if you want to test a new third-party platform service, we can get it up and integrate into the service in, in two weeks. So the major hurdles, obviously, first of all, the legacy systems, as we touched on. Now, what we're trying to introduce is this, this middle layer where we don't really have to integrate directly into your systems. We can just replicate these experiences directly in your applications through our technology. Now, regulation was obviously a big hurdle. We, we, we were part of the first regulatory sandbox. And that was because, we, first of all, we went out and we said, hey, look, we're trying to build this system which takes financial information and recommends an outcome. And pretty much everyone said, no, no, you, you can't do that. Absolutely not. Um, now, the amazing thing about the, the sandbox was they, they engaged with us and they said, actually, yes, this is possible if you show us how the underlying technology works. So what we do is we do generic recommendations based off data sets. Now, obviously, this is sort of the next leap in financial services where we start to look at things like AI. So if an AI decides, hey, um, that person really needs this FX product, that might be right, but we have no way of knowing how they came to that decision. So this is where regulations start to become an Im- really impact and, and it's going to change the way that marketplaces exist and platforms exist. When a lot of these decisions and matching services, whether it's credit or any, any solution, is actually done by... AI that we don't understand how they got there. 
this is where regulation is going to be interesting. Now, obviously, the new business models. So we found that it's a very profitable business to introduce third-party products. You, you also increase customer lifetime value, of course. You increase trust. And actually, you increase engagement. That is the main driving factor. So there's a bit of a push-pull with, with regulation and consumer expectations. So this is kind of why we think it's a bit of a perfect storm. So um, if anyone wants to test what I've been talking about, um, you can start next month. Um, we'll be deploying some of the new features. But that's a little bit about Bud. Um, Thank you. Good. Um, so thanks very much again, Chris, for the invitation and uh, everybody um, being here. Um, I think this um, having so many people in the same room talking about platforms is, is not is not a one time. That's the first time for me, obviously. But even I learned, Chris, it's the first time for you to have almost everybody in the platform world in one room talking about what we are passionate about and how we can bring passion back into banking. Because that's one of the things um, my mom always says, well, I've been in banking now for 26 years, that when you talk about banking, um, I, see, I see something a spark in your eyes, uh, which I usually see when people talk about a, an obsession, a, a pastime. But you talk about uh, like this, about banking, and... Um, I think this is because sometime, uh, somehow banking is my obsession, um, banking is my pastime, and um, <laughs> I've tried to get away from it many, many times, like a drug addict, um, but I've been drawn in back into banking and financial services many, many times over again, and um, I finally gave up and said, okay, probably that's the only thing I actually know, and um, let's see um, what this is now. Well, what's my part in the future of banking? Now, when we see, we talked um, about um, banking or fintech is technology. Uh, Chris uh, brought this up with this very nice picture of the old man. Uh, this is only financial. And um, uh, Connor just said, don't ask the techies. Yeah? It's a decision of the business model. And I think he's right because it's not just the technology but it is a banking license, and that's what we've got. We started out with a with a tech company two years ago um, with the idea really to create the platform. But we noticed we need the banking license in order to be there for the fintech world, for the, for the world of the disruptors. I will show you in a, let's say, in an example, zooming in, not just on a, on a, on a, on a fluffy part, but what it, what it means for an actual business model. Now... This is one, one thing, technology and banking, and we have to bring the two things together. And when you see even the logo, um, that's what I said to Aiden and to Connor, uh, sue me, um, this is um, what we have as a platform there. This is, uh, it looks pretty familiar that's to you, logo. <laughs> Good. But what is it really, what, um, uh, what we say, uh, with our technology and with the, with the license, that we can actually make everybody become a banking player. Now, that's not the good news for you, because we're bringing in competition, not because of us, but we are enabling, we're empowering um, people coming from the sites who are not banks, but who do have brands, who do have large amounts of customers, and who do have products who are very adjacent and can blend in financial products quite easily. So, and this is not only just in the fintech world, but this is the digital world, this is the retail world, this is the telco, but it's even banks. Now, 
uh, when we when we started uh, uh, with uh, and we basically um, jumped into the market on a, on the 14th of March 2016 that is just a year and three months ago we became very very fast known as the Lego bank uh, why because we were using the example of Lego bricks for the components in banking rather than having that monolithic banking approach we said let's Bring this down into components, very much as uh, Chris always says in his books. But we have actually done it. Uh, he already talks about it, but we do it. <laughs> um, uh, he's not here to hear that, but I'm sure you will hear that later. Um, so what we've done is uh, basically bring these components down. Um, and many of you have kids. What you do actually with Lego bricks is you can you can put ten bricks uh, together. You can build a tower. You can build a bridge. You can build a house. And that is the, the thing which we think makes it different than having just the, the process from A to Z provided by one bank. Now, as an example, just here, um, we, we are concentrating on three things now. Focus is, especially for a young company, is extremely important. We're concentrating on the credit bundle, on the digital banking bundle, and on the payments bundles. These are the three things at the moment where we are active in. We don't do... Anything in securities trading or, or other things like that, or mortgage, etc. We just do consumer financing, digital banking, and payments. Now, how does this look into in a, in a, as an example? I will jump over this one because I will go directly into the excourse. Just imagine a company which is well established in the market, and for the sake of argument. <laughs> We may or we may not have a customer like that. Um, just for the sake of argument, it's a, it's a large car rental company. What do they do? They do need to know a customer. They do need to see whether this person exists, whether this person is trustworthy because they give him a car, whether this person has a driver's license. But what do they know more about that customer? That he likes cars from time to time. Maybe he wants to buy a car. What is the actual business of a car rental company? It's not car rental. When you just look at the big ones, they purchase huge fleets of cars, often extremely, with an extremely uh, uh, big discount of the car manufacturers, even keep them months just on a parking lot and sell them off below price. That's quite interesting because once they're in that and they provide a financing to the customer, they can actually become a huge financial captive bank for, for cars. Now, when now, you just look at that, so they do fleet management, so for the B2B sector, they do the actual car rental, they sell cars. By plugging in into a platform, and remember, we have the banking license and we have the technology. By plugging in, they can create a full-fledged bank with our banking license, with our technology, with their customers, zooming in one little piece more. The financing of these cars is of utmost importance for this company to sell them off. Now, I don't know how it is here in the Nordics, but in Germany, getting a, customer, a consumer loan is still almost like going to the doctor getting colonoscopy. <laughs> yeah. It is really, really painful. You have to provide papers. You have to run to, to the post to, to bring everything there to send it off and so on and so forth. What we've created is a fully digital loan for exactly these kind of purposes. You can purchase a car, you can get a loan, and you don't even have to move from the table in your kitchen. 
we can fully identify you and we can fully e-sign directly there where you are. And Aiden and uh, uh, Connor talked about it passionately. It's a PSD2, which allows the customer to bring everything to the table like this. Because it's not the banks anymore who own the customer data. It is the customer owning the customer data. And the customer using the data in a way for him to use them for him. And that's why I love this example of, uh, of Connor. Give him his data back and make him sell his data. And he is really the one pushing it forward. You can really create further interaction with the customer. Um, just in, in relation, what um, because as you can see, we are a bit different than, um, uh, than Leveris, uh, both in the platform area, but we are looking more into cooperating with many other companies, banks among them, whilst Leveris is, is bringing the banks to the next level. When you just look at this, we have started out as, a, as the fintech bank for fintechs. Just when you see here, you have the, the B2B neobanks and you have the B2C neobanks. Everybody knows number 26, I guess. And you have then the B2B, you have Contest, Holby and Penta. Uh, Penta and Contest being actually customers of ours. They are running on our system. They are running on our license. What they have, or what they try to achieve, is the brand awareness. They work on a customer experience. And just remember Chris showing front-end, middle-office, back-office. They do the, the front office, and they do it really, really well. Whilst we create the middle layer to connect them to everything what they need in order to bring out the best service for the customer. And as a differentiation factor, it costs us a lot of money. It costs us a lot of... Well, it didn't cost us so much money because um, other, other uh, competitions, especially in the, in the UK, they have taken... Um, the huge or the, the big five to, to get a banking license. We didn't do that. We did this ourselves. We got a banking license in just nine months. So it costs us, I think, a, a split amount of what other might have spent mm -hmm. on that. But this is a differentiation factor. And um, it's very important because all those, they don't have the banking license. So the technology alone for them is not enough. But bringing the banking license to the game as well, we can enable them. So as I just said including banks, and this is where they, this is not very technical, uh, but this is just to bring it down to, 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 to put, let's say, to, to layman's terms. Because before, and uh, I've been working with Deutsche Bank for over 16 years in Poland and Argentina and in Germany, uh, I worked as a COO of Deutsche Bank in Poland, so I got a very good in, in view into how sourcing and technology works in a large company, especially in a large bank. What you usually do, the larger bank, the bigger the ticket is you can spend on consultants. So when you want to do some changes, you don't do the changes. First, you hire the consultants. And then the consultants tell you which of the companies you should be working with. The problem is then that you spend as a company, as a bank, you spend millions of integrating, technology-wise as well as legal-wise, into, into your system. What we have created basically is the same thing, but as a supermarket. So even banks can come and connect to us. Not all of them are customers of ours. A couple of them we are dealing with. And Hugo Vereinsbank is an investor. So you, you get a picture that this whole thing comes together. And you will see it now 
that is actually getting into this network effect. This is the, the creation of this space where you have, and um, very similar to what uh, the crazy picture um, Connor just showed, this is happening. Companies on our platform are already connecting to each other. They're they are using the once done identification and KYC. They've done vis-a-vis -vis to us and they can use that. We can reuse that. And that is already happening now with only 20-something partners by the end of the year with more than 100 partners. And this is where you see where the, where the additional value of a platform comes in because you can uh, grow exponentially. Um, just, we started in Europe, yeah, but um, with a little investment which we have done, um, this, is already, this is already wrong because we are now active already in eight different countries in Europe. Um, not just with the e-money license, but already with, uh, with the credit license and with uh, some further things. Um, we had, with our, in our last investment, we, we got Avato in as a very strong player in the financial world. And um, fortunately, we, um, it's, it's good to have two uh, Asian colleagues here. And that's why I was uh, a little bit smiling when Irene started with, the, with, with your, your Asia trip. Um, we see the same thing. And Chris mentioned this as well. Don't look to the Americas. Look east. We've done that. We found an investor in Japan. And this investor wants us to come to Asia, buy JVs, joint ventures, together with them to create platform, platformification over there in Asia. I think it's except China, because China and Asia, from my perspective, are still two completely different things. China as, a, as being a, a, a kind of separated market um, in itself but the rest of Asia is extremely powerful and there's, move, there's movement, as, uh, as Chris said, started in the 2000s. Well, this is how we approach the whole thing of the platform. It is a little bit different than Leverage, but this is exactly the flavor of it. It started a couple of years ago. Yeah? If one talks about it, he's a crazy person. If two talk about it, there might be something to it. If there's three and today there is six, I think there's a movement, and you should be looking at that movement because it's happening, not just because of us, because of everything what's going around us. Thank you very much. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I just a few seconds ago checked my email to find out actually what I was meant to be doing here, because it's almost like being in a church 
where you're all the clergy and the priests, and I'm the last person sitting outside the confessional about to come in and tell you something you've heard no no end of times already today, and you just want to sort of get back to the presbytery and have a glass of sherry. Um, Anyway, um, I'll try and tell you some stuff that you haven't heard um, over the course of the next little while. Um, Fleabank, as uh, Chris mentioned to you, appeared on the stage on the 28th of February this year. Um, We had been hiding um, uh, deliberately since sometime in 2013, believe it or not. Um, The idea um, for Clearbank, I have to confess to, was was mine. Um, And it came about um, by accident, I guess, in relation to having a conversation as you do at a conference, which is what we're at today, where you meet interesting people and you start talking to them and you exchange ideas and you exchange business cards and you never ever expect to hear from them ever again because that's what happens at conferences. The conference that I was at was one um, where the Treasury and the new payment service regulator uh, was talking about access to markets and this was access to the UK payments infrastructure um, for banks, building societies and credit unions. Um, and you'd have thought they have access to all of that sort of stuff, but you would, would have been completely wrong. Mary Stark, who was the interim payment service regulator in the UK, was having a cup of coffee with some of her colleagues from the Treasury, and I was having a cup of coffee with them and saying, well, you know, Mary, what are you going to talk about today? And she said, I'm going to talk about market access. I said, it's going to be very short then, isn't it? Because there isn't really any. I said, so that's going to be over and done with very, very quickly. And I said, assume that when the eggs fly up onto the stage, you'll avoid them. Um, and she said, yes, it is a bit of a problem, isn't it? And I said, I just don't get it. I don't understand why in the UK in 2014, given all of the work, all of the reports, all of the competition, all of the challenges that have happened, you know, a small blip called the global financial crisis, which we try and avoid talking about, why the UK hasn't had a new clearing bank. Because it's very, very hard to change a market by breaking up an existing incumbent. And the analogy that I used was, in the UK, we had uh, dominant supermarket chains. So we had Sainsbury's and Tesco's and all the rest of it. And, you know, the news every three months, whenever their quarterly results came out, was, you know, one's notched forward a percent on market share, one's notched back. That was about exciting as it could get, or you could buy your butter for a few pence cheaper from one of them. And we had two um, firms turn up, Aldi and Lidl, who arrived in the UK marketplace as true competitors. They weren't connected with the old, they were brand new, and they were going into the marketplace to change it. And so the <coughs> incumbents turned around and said, oh, right, these guys are just selling cheap products. It's rubbish. What actually was going on was that they were selling products cheaply with a different business model. And so their cost of delivery, cost of service, all of those good things was completely different. As a result of that, they transformed the marketplace and now have 10% of the UK grocery market. So when I was talking to Mary, I said to her, you know, we've got to do something different because breaking up one of the existing incumbent four banks in the UK might do the job for you as a regulator because from a percentage stake, you'll go from four banks controlling 100% of the marketplace, 25% each, to five banks controlling the marketplace, 20% each. But the problem in breaking up banks and changing the financial services marketplace is you don't alter delivery, 
you don't alter culture, you don't alter service offering, all you do is change a number. So Mary said to me, well, that's quite interesting. I said, well, my, my thought on this, Mary, is that if I went to the Bank of England today, many of you have been through London, you've been to Threadneedle Street, you've probably peered into the door of the Bank of England and seen some very, very tall ex-City of London policemen with pink top hats on. Don't ask me why, it's what they do. And my understanding is that if you, I'd gone into the Bank of England and knocked on the door and said, I'm here to open a clearing bank, they would have ushered me out and say, go away. So I said, there must be a regulatory or political reason why there hasn't been a clearing bank before. <laughs> really, really interesting. I'll go and find out. So my expectation was nothing will happen. And about three weeks later, she came back to me and she said, actually, they, we can't find any reason, and we talked to the Bank of England, PRI, the FCA, the Treasury, Competition and Markets Authority. In fact, we talked to everybody. We didn't talk to the Queen. We talked to everybody that we need to. <laughs> right? Nobody knows why there hasn't been another, a new clearing bank. And actually, there hasn't been a new one for 250 years. And so the person that did the last one is dead and didn't leave a guidebook as to what he was meant to be doing. So if you would like to go and start talking to the FCA about your mad idea, feel free to do so. So in March 2014, we started on an interesting journey to go and talk to the regulators about creating a new clearing bank. And what we were doing was this. We were challenging the status quo, and anybody can do that. You don't have to accept that markets are as they are presented to you today. You can always change anything if you actually want to. And so what we did was we went and started challenging the status quo. Why did we do that? Right? If you look at what's happened since the Internet rocked up, and I was involved in the very early creation of the Internet back in the UK uh, in 1994, a lot of things have changed very, very, over a very short period of time. Um, you know, service versus self-service, right? You used to go to a bookshop to buy a book. Now you go to Amazon and buy a book electronically and put it on your Kindle, right? Research versus instant information. You used to go to a library and look up information, look up books or phone somebody up and find that information. Now you go online for instant information. Donald Trump would assure you that's not actually true. But most of it is. And you then had Hobson's Choice versus total optionality. And that was because you couldn't get access to stuff, you had to go with what you couldn't ordinarily found. Um, in 1994, when we built Europe's first online shop, um, we did some work with WPP, with Martin Sorrell's group. Um, and we found out that most people actually transacted within a 30-mile radius of where they lived. This is pre-internet, because that's where they felt safe. Because when it went wrong, they could go back, punch the person that sold, us, sold them the product, and get their money back more easily, harder, when they were based overseas on the internet. So we've gone through a position where we've gone from Hobson's Choice locally sourcing to total optionality. We can get anything we want from anywhere. When it arrives and it doesn't work, we can't go and punch anybody. We charge it back. So the financial markets impacts and all of this actually started before the internet arrived. Um, Throughout Europe during the 1960s, I think in North America as well, there was a consolidation in progress. You know, it's natural in all markets for consolidation to happen in the same way that in the supermarket industry in the UK we'd have market consolidation. In financial services, you get banks growing and you get smaller banks struggling and they consolidate up and consolidate up. In 2000, that consolidation started really to explode. And you know, we saw that in the UK firsthand 
with um, uh, Bank of Scotland and RBS fighting over NatWest Bank with a hostile takeover bid, which resulted in a very small bank, I think a tenth the size of NatWest in Royal Bank of Scotland acquiring um, um, uh, NatWest. And then, of course, it all fell apart with the acquisition of ABN AMRO. The global financial crisis impacted significantly on the services and the selection of the core banks that we use and we, we have uh, access to. And then by accident almost, the Payment Services Directive arrived in 2009, which was there to encourage competition and access to markets. The problem was that they hadn't predicted that the global financial crisis would challenge the banks to such an extent, whereby organisations, new entrants looking to um, get access to payment systems and all the rest of it, would face serious challenges because the incumbent banks... A, were trying to stave off bankruptcy or had sought state aid. B, had something called legacy systems. So since then, and I always I think PSD1 was, I think, you know, the, the, the first payment service directive. Since then, the regulators have been watching. Um, and I believe in about 2014, not just in the UK, but quite extensively, regulatory appetite for change started which is very, very, very important because that means that you can challenge the status quo. So what I'd like to do is just show you a very, very quick video, and this is what we did, if this works. In the UK, £82 trillion worth of payments are processed through the UK financial system every year. Several different payment schemes and networks make up the UK payment infrastructure. Bags, chaps, faster payments, link checks, Visa and MasterCard. There are currently only four banks that can process every type of payment. These are known as clearing banks. The majority of other UK high street banks, financial service providers, FCA regulated organisations and fintechs must rely on one of these four banks to access the payments infrastructure. In 1960, there were 16 clearing banks, but due to market consolidation, there are now only four. In the past few decades, numerous reports have argued that the clearing bank system lacks competition and the arrival of the internet has challenged delivery. The ageing technology that sits at the heart of the UK finance industry has hindered the bank's ability to offer fast, cost-efficient services. The UK hasn't had a new clearing bank in over 250 years. Until now. Clearbank disrupts the status quo. We are the UK's fifth clearing bank, delivering unfettered access to the UK payments network, including all payment schemes, electronic payment methods, and international banking infrastructure. So how is Clearbank different? We designed the Clearbank platform specifically to provide clearing and financial infrastructure services. Clearbank is free from the constraints of years of legacy IT infrastructure. Our state-of-the-art, cloud-based technology transforms the clearing bank experience and can process payments faster, more efficiently and cost-effectively than ever before possible. All client balances are held directly with the Bank of England rather than getting lost in our balance sheet. Funds are secured and available instantly. Most importantly, for the first time in recent UK banking history, financial service providers, FCA-regulated businesses and fintechs can work with a purpose-built and independent clearing bank. Because we have no direct relationship with the consumer, Clearbank poses no competitive threat in that market. 
By opening up the banking system, the whole of the UK economy can benefit. Clearbank will transform the way £82 trillion of payments are made every year in the UK. Today, a revolution begins. So that was the 28th of February, uh, 12-odd weeks ago. Prior to launching Clearbank, we had a number of challenges, a number of um, issues that we had to face. Um, Cybercrime, financial crime, you can read all of these, scalability and resilience, regulators and standards, blockchain questions and all the rest of it. But the, the biggest challenge that we faced was financial inclusion. And it's funny, when you look at the UK, and I was smiling when I saw the PSD2 uh, interest in the UK, of course, we're fascinated by that because we have an election on at the moment, um, is that we have in the UK today 400 regulated organisations who are already regulated who can provide current account services to their customers. 39 of those are building societies with 3 million customers. A larger number, 350-odd, are credit unions with about 2 million customers who are not financially inclusive. And historically, because of the challenges in the UK marketplace of getting access to payment systems, cost and complexity and all the rest of it, those organisations have been excluded from getting in touch with their customers. So one of the things that Clearbank set out to do was to change that dynamic and to allow them to get direct access through to clearing services, current account platforms, and all the rest of it. So when we started to look at how we would deal with that challenge from a customer level, cybercrime came out as the top concern that we had, which I'm certain everybody in this room, if we polled you, uh, is going to be the top top issue that you will face. Um, And so we had to look around and try and come up with the best solution that we possibly could, and a service provider that was going to invest about $6 billion a year in cybercrime for us, because whilst I've got supportive shareholders, their pockets aren't necessarily that deep. Financial crime was another challenge that we faced, and when we looked at that, um, you fall back to look at the way that SWIFT operates and all the rest of it, which all of you will be, uh, be aware of, and we looked at the amount and content of messaging that we can move through between different institutions to reduce the level of financial crime and reduce the number of false positives that come through as a consequence of minimal messaging that runs through the SWIFT networks at the moment. We wanted to have a platform that had scalability and resilience because things break, because we make software so they'll always go, it'll always have a problem and all the rest of it, and payment schemes have problems. In 2014, we had two outages of our core RTGS platform in the UK. Uh, We've had challenges with faster payments. Many of the banks have had failures. And so we wanted to build an intelligence system so that if the payment system failed, then our platform would automatically reroute across to another system simultaneously and transparently to the customer because our focus was on the customer, not on ourselves. And then in relation to dealing with the regulators and standards, um, we found huge support over the course of, of the last three and a half years from the regulators in relation to looking at the way that cloud computing works, understanding how they can help develop that, moving the goalposts forward to support our customers as we deliver an open platform, not only in the UK but elsewhere. And finally, I've got to touch on blockchain. Um, In transactional banking, which is what we do, we need speed of light transaction throughput. 
Um, and so blockchain, unfortunately, didn't tick the box for that at this moment in time. But we do use distributed ledgers technology to support a wide range of um, uh, support services so that every time we process a transaction, right, instantaneously we get 12 copies of it, or we could do 24. It means we can never lose anything going through the system. I've got another little video for you because it explains it far better than I do, which gives you a little bit of background on the IT platform that we built, which is available to any institution in the world. ClearBank's leading edge technology platform has been built from the ground up on Microsoft's cloud Azure, meeting the needs of the UK banking market now and in the future. We operate a hybrid cloud environment. Azure is a global cloud network with data centers across the world. ClearBank uses two Azure data centers for its UK operations today. We access these via a closed circuit connection to Microsoft's UK peering location, a gateway to the Azure platform. ClearBank operates two private cloud data centers as a single cloud, providing a robust banking infrastructure with world-class reliability and performance. This private cloud environment is built on the Azure platform. It is highly secure with no direct connection to the outside world. All client interactions are through Azure's public cloud environment. No clients connect directly with our private cloud. A client must be fully authenticated before using ClearBank. ClearBank leverages cognitive services for biometric authentication. Once authenticated, clients initiate banking transactions in Azure, which are encrypted and passed into ClearBank's private cloud. We used agile methodologies to build the ClearBank core. By using agile work streams, we could create and engineer concurrently to reduce our build cycles while continually testing and managing a complex code base. Day to day, we work collaboratively with Microsoft's cyber threat services and its cyber crime team in Redmond to secure data. The transaction moves from Azure through ClearBank's microservices gateway, which is built on the Azure service fabric to the UK payment schemes. All data at rest is located inside our private cloud, meeting strict regulatory requirements. Once completed, a status message flows up to the client. Our customers can access faster, more efficient and more cost-effective solutions and payment processing. The cloud also provides ClearBank with new levels of compute capabilities, powering big data analytics used for real-time functions such as liquidity management. Cloud compute power also enables ClearBank's artificial intelligence for AML and fraud detection, analyzing every single transaction that flows through ClearBank in near real time. By embracing the cloud, ClearBank is rewriting the rules on how financial services can be delivered in the UK. <clears throat> so what we then have uh, is a situation, a position where if, when we go to the market, we go to customers, we present them with an ISO 222 API or a core banking platform, and that's it. That's all we do. Uh, we haven't got a position whereby we compete with anybody in the marketplace. Uh, and over the course of the last 12 weeks or so, uh, we have been approached by a vast, vast number of UK banks, building societies and regulated uh, organisations, including some of the largest banks in the country, and internationally, some of the largest banks as well, looking to find how they can use our platform to collaborate, link in, provide services, provide services back. The next steps on our journey, um, we tend to sort of keep quiet. We managed to keep ClearBank quiet for 
three and a half years and then went boo. Um, and I'm told that, um, we, that our named claim to fame was on the 28th of February. WTF was the most tweeted comment around Canary Wharf in London. Um, one of the main things that we're looking at at the moment is the fact that why as an industry, and I'll, I'll use this as a little dig some of the people in here can help fix this problem. Why as an industry are we prepared to give our customers that best third-rate service on payments? We have a situation today where there are claims that we have a global network that gives 100% availability and support. But that actually isn't quite true. Because if you take away the weekends and the bank holidays that all the banks around the world have, and you assume that a year is 100%, you get back to a system that's probably working at about 60% efficiency. And then when you take away the legacy issues, the lack of uh, straight-through processing, the challenges created by unlinked and unhinged KYC and AML, you probably take another, away another 30 to 40% of that efficiency, and that efficiency equals delay. So you get back to a global payments network, which is probably at best running at 30% efficiency for the banks that are operating it. Yet the banks who are operating it are prepared to accept that level of inefficiency because for 40% of the time they're not there so they don't notice it. And the people that suffer are the customers at the base of that, which is why we have lost payments and all the rest of it. So if you want to have a guess at where we're looking to um, help and make changes in relation to the partnerships that we're creating around the world at the moment, is to try and improve um, payment settlement and settlement finality. Uh, last year we did a transaction. We can take an Aussie dollar transaction into sterling, move it across the world, deliver it into a UK bank account, put it onto a phone, turn it out onto NFC, into Starbucks in a millisecond. So it, anybody can do this. It's not exclusive to us. So I think my final point is that we've been very, very fortunate in the UK to have the regulatory opportunity to create a very, very substantial change, very substantial change. Um, and what we're doing now is partnering. We, we see no competitors in this room. We see no competitors in the UK. We just see market opportunity for change. And anybody in this room can be an agent for change if they choose to. Thank you. Irene asked me to set the scene, and some of you have seen my presentations before. And so, uh, as we have quarterly meetings, to come up with a completely new presentation every quarter is, I won't say impossible, but because uh, my slides change every day, but you may recognize some of them because I'm going to use a theme that um, I use and I have used, in fact, for 20 years, which shows that uh, it's a theme that's either seriously out of date or robust. You can make your own mind up. And the theme is based around marketplaces, which uh, I think have been evolving and emerging for some time, but now have come and blossomed to fruition, as you'll see from the other companies that are presenting this afternoon. Uh, most of you, I guess, know me, um, but if you don't, then that's my summary slide. I write a lot of books, I write a lot of blogs, I have, write a lot of words. I'm really boring about banking and technology, because um, that's what I do every day, living and breathing these services. Um, so to begin with, let's look at the business model of the bank or any business, which is that every business has a back office that's manufacturing products and services. They have a middle office that's going to be providing the processing infrastructure that connects the back office to the front office. And the front office is all about being really good with customers, being customer intimate, being relevant and giving a great user experience. 
And this is the outline model that I've been using, as I say, for 20 years, because it really shows that the main technological capabilities are in the middle office, to be honest, in terms of the core infrastructure of the operations. And often the back office, particularly in banks, is based on processing systems that are seriously old and need renovation, although some of them are becoming newer. Most companies are not good at all of this, in in that uh, this actual outline of a business model came from Michael Treakey's 1990s book, The Disciplines of Market Leadership, which if you haven't heard of or read, it basically says every company has a manufacturing, processing, and retailing company. So it's actually three companies in one, a manufacturing company, a processing company, and a retailing company. And that most companies, because they don't actually focus on core competencies strategically well enough, end up being only good at one of these things. Like they're really good with product innovation, but they're not particularly good at distribution and service. Or they're really good at dealing with customers, but their products are pretty average. There's a few that break that idea. So I'd say Apple is probably one of the exceptions to the rule that is pretty good across all three. Although, having seen the latest iOS updates on my iPhone, I'm not so sure about the product. (laughs) And then there's some other books that have shaped my thinking, because I've been focused on business um, transformation most of my career. And another book that shaped the business transformation ideas that I have is Michael Hammer's and James Champy's Reengineering Corporation that came out in 1989. So it's an old book. Um, Well, it's been updated and revised with a new prologue. There we go. Um, And if you don't know this book, um, it's all about recognizing how you can re-engineer the company for transformational improvements. And what tends to happen is that when companies re-engineer, they go for incremental improvements because incremental is far easier than transformational. Um, But the premise of the book is that a business is based on products, processes, and people. And again, it's a really simple idea looking at a business as products, processes, and people front, middle, back office. So again, it fits this model of three companies in one with the human element obviously being the critical part on the experience of where the company actually interacts with the customer. And the transformational approach of re-engineering would take the interactions between the humans and then build the business processes and products from those interactions. So you reimagine the business from the outside in. And what's been interesting for me, particularly as I chaired a conference in Rwanda two weeks ago uh, in, in Africa, is that we had M-Pesa and Airtel on a panel discussing how they were innovating in convenience across the African region. And I said, how do the banks compete with you? And they said, they don't. They are not particularly effective. And the main reason being is that the banks try and copy our products and then give better rates but they don't actually notice the customer. We are, we are focused obsessively on customer convenience. So it's that obsessive outside-in customer view that is the way in which businesses are transforming. And banks, unfortunately, have a very inside-out view in the ones I've dealt with in my career and very product-focused rather than customer-focused. And in fact, we were having that conversation last night and most of the banks in, around the table agreed with me that it's something that... They know is a fault, but it's because of the separate business unit mentalities and the way in which the business is structured. We need to change that. And then if I look at where we are today, um, with technology, the product process and people, the middle back front office, the retailing, manufacturing and processing is changing dramatically because we're moving products onto platforms. And from platforms, (laughs) we're then giving great experiences. 
And that is the transformation of today, the platform revolution, where <laughs> banks own this marketplace in financial context today, but they may not tomorrow unless they move to being open platforms that embrace open banking, collaborate and co-create. And we can see this obviously in many other industries, such as in the idea of wanting a ride, I need to go somewhere, to someone having a car who can take me there, connecting through a platform called Uber. And we all talk about the Uber experience and how Uber's changed the world. Well, all it's doing is connecting people with cars with people who need rides. It's a very simple idea, but done through an open marketplace platform. And it's the same with Airbnb, which is someone who needs to find somewhere to sleep being connected to a bed via a platform. So the product is the bed. The need, the experience is that I'm having a holiday. I need a good connection to where I stay. And it's interesting in the entertainment game right now that the heavyweights of the Netflix, Amazon Primes of this world are competing across all three of these areas because they want to be the experience in the front office that makes sure you're watching their services. But to do that, they have to create strong content. So there's a big battle over the content to ensure that you stay on their platform. So that actually is a different model to the Ubers and Airbnbs, but just as uh, in the same context, it is all about creating strong middle office APIs, open marketplace platforms that engage people and connect people for those who want something with those who have what they need. And that to me is the definition of marketplaces. It's transforming businesses because we built most of our businesses for the industrial era. And in the industrial era, most of what was being done in marketplaces was being built and lifted by all the hands in the organization to enable those products to be produced. So you would create the products, integrate the product pieces, distribute the products and service the products and do everything in a tightly coupled, proprietary, controlled, end-to-end value chain. These are the businesses that are being broken apart by technology. You know, the biggest businesses in the world today are not these industrial era behemoths, the Fords, the General Motors, the Exxons. It's the technology platform marketplace companies of Facebook, Amazon, Google that are redefining the game because we get rid of the overhead of buildings and humans through platforms. In the financial services, we are seeing this and have seen this for quite some time where if someone needs to or wants to get a car, they need to get some money to buy the car, they can now do that through peer-to-peer platforms. So peer-to-peer lending, peer-to-peer foreign exchange, peer-to-peer transfers of value have started to really change our markets across the whole gamut of those markets into components. Components of functionality based on apps and APIs. Because now you can break down any piece of financial services into a specific capability of technology that's plug and play and this idea of doing all the heavy lifting of building it ourselves internally in a proprietary controlled structure is actually last century thinking it's dying and if we don't get away from that last century thinking our businesses will die because we have to become open collaborative marketplaces with these component-based functionality providers because a lot of them are doing it better than we can do these things when you look at Stripes of this world, or you look at TransferWise, or you look at the robo-advisory services, they're providing services that we traditionally, in, in the incumbent financial institutions, haven't provided very well, because it's a bit expensive to do so. It's hard to do so. So I think in my last speech here, I talked about the apps, APIs, and analytics revolution of open banking, and how machine learning, particularly in the back office, 
is going to be the transformational area because machine learning, artificial intelligence in the back office is where the action is. It's where you can get the real differentiation. But these technologies of the front office now being all things connected through the Internet of Things intelligently with great experiences that allows us to delegate to our devices our financial lifestyles. And those are all managed through APIs that connect to data is what we're really defining as the new marketplace, a marketplace of components that are integrated for an aggregated great front office experience. And there are many, many, many players playing in that marketplace. And we could sit and say, well, I can do all the things those companies do, but these companies are becoming unicorns, billion-dollar-plus valuation companies, by doing one thing really, 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 really well. And if we really think we can do their one thing better than they can, I think we're delusional. So let's bring them in to our platforms. Let's bring them into our marketplaces. Let's enable a co-creative collaborative structure where actually we're going to get a lot more business by putting our functionality out into that marketplace for them to use and vice versa. We're going to give our customers a much better experience by bringing them onto our platforms. And the reason why this afternoon's exciting for me is that I haven't seen all these guys present back to back before, but I often talk about what Saxo Bank's doing, for example, because I presented with Benny in Asia um, at the launch of the API marketplace for Saxo Bank's <coughs> brokers and dealers, which is a really interesting, exciting, open API marketplace that's now gaining quite a lot of attraction, and you'll hear about that later this afternoon. Solaris with Marco, uh, we've known for quite a while, um, Berlin-based company, fintech startup, that initially started as a marketplace for other fintechs, as a B2B, business-to-business offer, but then found an awful lot of companies, online merchants and retailers became interested in Solaris to fill in the functionality that their banks do not provide, which is where, again, when you're in a marketplace, your customers may be the most unexpected people because you, you don't know who needs that functionality until you've got that functionality out into the marketplace. With Bud and Ed, uh, you know, consumer-focused capabilities that leads into advisory services, it's just going through the FCA's regulatory sandbox in the UK. And again, changing the game based on the fact that you can see opportunities that are not being filled by others. With ClearBank, when Nick Ogden's ClearBank was launched, no one knew what it was because he'd kept it under wraps and NDAs for two years and suddenly shook up the marketplace by launching the first new clearing bank in many years, some would say decades, and one based on a completely new way of looking at how to use technology for clearing payments across the UK and world markets. With Leverus, you know, the idea that you could run a bank based on adverts becomes an interesting notion. And Connor's going to talk about that this afternoon. And again, these are all companies that you just stumble across by going to different fintech conferences and by being networked. And in fact, the one that isn't here that is actually the biggest startup that's doing this is Ant Financial. Ant Financial in China, I wrote about, uh, it's probably about a year ago, because I'd heard that they were offering a financial marketplace of apps, APIs, and analytics across the Chinese markets to other Chinese banks. And they had 40 banks using their apps, APIs, and analytics from their marketplace at that time. Today, it's even more. And they have China Construction Bank and many of the biggest banks in China working with them or using some of their services. What was interesting at the time that I wrote about it is that one of my friends who's in a bank in Asia emailed me and said, you shouldn't be posting stuff like this because this is imaginary and it's stupid. There's no way they could be doing this because they're too young, too new, not experienced enough. The guys who are young, new, and not experienced approach it with fresh eyes. 
they are doing this. And that's what's tra- changing the game. So if I was an incumbent institution, I'd be saying, how can I partner, collaborate, co-create with these companies to improve my customers' experiences, to reduce my costs and inefficiencies in my infrastructure, to innovate my products and services, to differentiate from the market? And in fact, you end up, rather than being a control freak in a proprietary, closed, vertically integrated structure, you become a curator. You are curating the best of the marketplace for your customers to give the best that we can be. And knowing that these guys are specializing in one thing really well as a functionality that's plug and play, which we can't copy, we can't get anywhere near that capability because they're doing one thing really well. We're trying to do hundreds of things averagely. This is where it changes. It's like the old car manufacturers when they used to build all the cars and service all the cars and distribute all the cars. They would get all the components, they would integrate all the components, they would make all the components. They don't anymore. I mean, when you go and buy a BMW or a Mercedes or a Porsche, what you're getting is standard components sourced globally. And often the same cars have all the same components and maybe just three or four different pieces that is actually the piece that's the form factor experience that that car manufacturer wants to give you. The chassis, the engine, or maybe some of the interior design. So manufacturing's been open sourcing for many years, components. Now we're open sourcing financial services with technology to take on these components. And this is the reason why it's exciting dealing in financial innovation and what's happening right now, because this open marketplace platform structure is the whole reason why $100 billion has been invested in fintech in the last four years. Because suddenly there's an explosion of creativity and design that's been inhibited in the past because we haven't had the ability to do this innovation. And now we have. And by that wave of investment, we've seen a wave of innovation around different capabilities from the growing um, capabilities in insure tech, reg tech and wealth tech, for example, to what are now the mature services like Venmo, Alipay, Vips and other services, the wallets of this world. A lot has been happening. And it's all about taking any part of financial services, breaking it down into component pieces, rebuilding them to be the best they can be in an open source marketplace structure and offering those through platforms in that marketplace for everyone to use as they see fit. And so you can see that impact on banking. When you see Stripe in five years is creating 20 times, two times more value than JP Morgan Chase, you can see things are changing which is Stripe just specializes in one thing, merchant checkout online, not this generic, wholly integrated universal banking concept of the past. What I found really interesting right now, and it's part of the reason why Lattice 80 being here is uh, a good thing, is that um, too often we look at the Americans for innovation. So Facebook, Amazon, Google um, are the ones that are often cited as being the ones we should worry about. And it's not the Americans that we should worry about because the Americans live in a legacy economy. Their infrastructure is old. Same in Europe, to be honest. Whereas China's leapfrogged the American economy by having an economy that's been laying their infrastructure since the 2000s rather than since the 1960s. So it's a wholly new economy based on the internet and mobile internet, which is demonstrated when you look at what's happening with um, MCL and financial, who are now breaking out into Europe. Um, but I kind of say you, sh- you should definitely focus on what I call fat bag rather than gaffer. So rather than Google, a- Amazon, Facebook, Apple, it's Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Badoo, and Google fat bag. 
you've got these Chinese giants that are very different to the American giants because the American giants through governance are delineated and separated so you can't do social, commercial and financial in the same system by law they keep that separated whereas in China all three of the giants Badu and Tencent have banking, commercial and social in the same app, in the same ecosystem so you never have to leave that ecosystem it's tightly integrated it's giving the Chinese government a lot of information that's another story um, so I'm not sure we want that same system here um, but it is a system that's leapfrogged the world I mean when you look at the statistics of 5.5 trillion dollars last year being sent through mobile payments in this ecosystem of apps compared to the measly 112 billion dollars in America you can see the leapfrogging economy and it's a leapfrogging economy because they didn't have any credit cards <coughs> or debit cards, plastic they've just woof, overnight jumped into a connected economy based on the mobile internet and it's completely open nothing is proprietary so we're at this juncture of do we go down the open source route and stop being a control freak or do we try and stay in proprietary avenue and stop these threatening you know, PSD2 open APIs ripping apart our customers data and stealing from us I wonder what the mentality is in this room I was in Oslo um, after our last meeting where uh, the CEO of a new fintech startup was announcing their partnership with Nordea Bank. And the CEO stood up and began the speech by saying, my three-year-old son likes to play with dinosaurs, so do we. <laughs> it's a great way to announce a partnership with a bank. <laughs> um, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but when I think about um, the most of the boardrooms of banks that I walk into, um, they are a little bit like this. You know, they are a little bit old. <laughs> And this is, to me, the biggest issue in the incumbent institutions, that they don't have the people or the diversity to lead the bank to be a fintech marketplace. And banks are going to be fintech marketplaces. They are fintech companies. If we think that banks are not fintechs, then there's something wrong. And a fintech is normally half fin and half tech, whereas this is all fin and no tech. Six percent of the bank boardrooms have people who have any technology background experience in their career. Which means that 94% have no idea the difference between a distributed ledger and a blockchain and couldn't even get their heads around it because it's difficult enough for a technologist to get their head around that one, let alone a banker. How can you lead a business into a cultural digital transformation program to an open marketplace if you have people who do not understand what that means, how it works, how to make it happen? I was even more stunned when I saw a figure the other day which I use specifically for my American friends, because it's the American banks, where 43% of their core systems are written in COBOL. And the issue they have is that they're having to bring people out of retirement from the golf course with promises of $500,000 salaries or more to work on these systems. But the issue they have is that actually a lot of those guys who have retired and are on, on the golf course are actually dying. <laughs> so keeping these systems, you know, heartbeats pumping is really difficult when you've got dead programmers. It just doesn't work anymore. We have to open up, collaborate, co-create, partner, get the best that's out there, integrated, and work with marketplaces and platforms. And going back to my boardroom of old men, I just wonder if 94% of them have no idea about technology and marketplaces and APIs and artificial intelligence and machine learning. How can they ever be fully committed to the change program that we're proposing? As in, they have to completely transform the bank to be open and collaborative and being closed and proprietary.
I don't want to, I don't want to work with dinosaurs. I want to work with fintech companies. And I think banks can be fintech companies, but only if they're fully committed to the change program to open up and be collaborative and to recognize that the world has changed thanks to the internet and technology age in the way in which we see in China and also we're seeing in India and Africa and many of the emerging economies. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to all of our wonderful interviewees. We'll be back next week with more insights. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about Fintech Insider. Thanks for listening. Bye.